You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet before, my name is Sam. I serve as a a leader here at the church. And uh, I just want to say a special welcome to you. If you are, uh, if you've been part of our church for many, many years, or maybe this is your very first time checking out CA Church, um, I just want you to know that you are so welcome here. We're so thankful that you would choose to come and spend some time with us as we worship, as we explore God's word, as we be in community with one another. Uh, So, so cool. Well, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 5? Matthew chapter 5. And this morning, we're going to spend the time that we have together continuing a series that we've been in over the last few weeks and that we're going to be in over the next several months, a series that we have called A New Humanity. Where over this next few months, what we're going to be doing is is a deep dive into Matthew chapter 5 to 7, exploring kind of line by line, section by section, some of Jesus' greatest teachings on what it means to be human, what it means to be fully alive. It's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And can I just say, I am so excited about this series, so looking forward to it. I've been kind of saturating in this, this, these couple, couple of chapters, this teaching from Jesus over the last few months as we've been preparing for this series. And I've watched it in that preparation phase really make a huge impact on, on my heart and my life, the way that I think about the world and my life and my relationships. And so really excited about what this series, I believe that Jesus is going to use it uh, to really build our church. And it's layered. There's, there's so much there. As usual for Jesus, there's so much more in the words that he shares in this, in this sermon than you catch the first time through reading this text. There's layer upon layer, and so many implications for us as a community. But hey, before we get into our specific teaching text for today, let me just do a little bit of a refresher, kind of catch us up. I missed last week. I was in Los Angeles with a group of pastors and a cohort that I'm part of. Um, but, but I listened to the podcast, and oh my goodness, didn't David do such a great job laying out a foundation for this series and teaching through those first two Beatitudes? Really inspiring. Really loved that talk. And if you, if you missed it, or, or even if you just forget, I heard this week that people forget about 80% of what's said in the pulpit. <laughs> which is so discouraging for me as a preacher. I really hope that's not true. But just in case it is true, let me catch you up a little bit. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 opens with Jesus on a mountainside. And uh, I was just in Israel not too long ago in the fall with Pastor Mark and a few of our other pastors, and I had the opportunity to go into that, that region where this would have taken place and to go up on a hill on a mountaintop. They don't know exactly which one it would have been, but one, either this one or one like this one. And I actually had the privilege of reading the entire Sermon on the Mount, start to finish, Matthew 5 to 7, with the group of people that were there. Such a powerful experience that we shared together as, as we heard and just imagined what it would have been like to be in the first century and to hear those words read or shared, preached for the very first time. Uh, the text tells us that crowds of people gathered around Jesus, people from all different walks of life. There was probably some really devout believers there, people who had already bought into Jesus as a great teacher, maybe as the Messiah. There were probably a lot of skeptics who had gathered I imagine there was also friends and family of people who had said, you got to come hear this young, provocative rabbi. Come check this out. Hear what he has to say. And and I I don't think, I think what, what none of them realized is that the words that they were about to hear on that dusty hill in the Israeli desert, what they would hear would change the entire course of human history, would have a greater effect on, on, on the world, 
on, on society than any other document or sermon or speech ever has and ever will in the past, present, or future. So in this sermon, Jesus is introducing this kind of upside-down kingdom. He's flipping the ideologies of the day on their head, and, and it starts off right off the top with who Jesus calls blessed. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds that had gathered, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, we're only 12, 12 words into the sermon at this point, and I imagine that the crowd is already kind of gasping, maybe even in unison. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What did he just say? Who's blessed? See, it was common thought of the day for the Jewish people that the ones that were blessed were the ones who had everything that they needed, the ones who were rich, the ones that were healthy and powerful, the ones who had big families and lots of properties. They were the ones that were blessed. They were the ones that were experiencing the favor of God, right? Like, like that just makes sense. And I don't think that understanding of blessing is that far off from what most of us gravitate towards or think of when we hear that word blessed, especially on this side of tele-evangelists and the so-called prosperity gospel. Many Christians have subtly bought into this idea that God's blessing and favor is evidenced in how comfortable we are or how well our business is doing or how big our bank account is or how prosperous we are, as though blessing is almost a synonymous phrase for like the American dream or, or the Canadian dream, if that's a thing. And so Jesus' opening statement that the poor in spirit are the ones that are blessed, it would have been this jaw-dropping statement right off the start of the sermon. Blessed are the poor, the poor in spirit. Like, what? No, 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 no. What they had always been taught is blessed are the powerful. This word blessed that Jesus uses in this, in the, in this sermon uh, over and over again, it's translated in a few different ways in different uh, translations of the Bible. Some translations have used this word happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. I don't think that's a great translation of the, uh, of the original Greek. Last week, David pointed out that another scholar has, has translated it, congratulations, or, or my, one of my favorites is, you lucky bums. <laughs> but I think maybe the most accurate translation, again, this is a refresher on last week, is in sync, to be in sync with the rule and reign of God. Jesus is saying that those who embody these characteristics are so in alignment with, the, with the, 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 the God and his kingdom. They're blessed. They're in sync with God. So let's keep reading. So blessed or in sync are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And then the verse that we're gonna spend most of our time in today, the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Hey, question, what, what, um, what comes to mind when you think of the word meek? What kind of person do you think of when you hear that word meekness of meek? I feel like there's, there's a lot of negative connotations that have swirled around and associated with this English word meek. Like, I don't know about you, but even for me, when I hear the word meekness, it can almost trigger these thoughts of like spinelessness. Or I'd naturally associate the word with a lack of courage or someone who doesn't have a deep conviction about anything, maybe a pushover, or, or at least someone who just goes with the flow, doesn't want to rock the boat too much, complacency. These are the kind of words that come to mind when I think about meek. But the, but, but the quality that Jesus is calling blessed in Matthew chapter 5 actually has nothing to do with any of those images. One Bible teacher points out that the beatitude is not blessed are the doormats. It's not blessed are the wimps, for they shall inherit the earth. 
The vision that Jesus is laying out for meekness, it's so much different, so much grander than that. And maybe it's important to say right off the top that meekness is not weakness. If anything, the biblical vision of, of meekness is one of strength, strength of, uh, or power that's harnessed and used for good. Meekness isn't weakness. What we see in scripture is that meekness actually requires a lot of strength, great strength. And one of the main reasons that I say that is because there's only two people in all of scripture that are referred to as meek. Anyone want to guess who they are? Two characters in the Bible referred to as meek. Not Mary. No. <laughs> Moses, yeah. Moses and Jesus are the two people in Scripture that are referred to as meek. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3 says, it says, Now the man Moses was very humble. That's the same word as meek. More than any other man who's on the face of the earth. And then in Matthew chapter 11, 20, 29, this is my favorite verse in the entire Bible. Jesus says this about himself. He invites people, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. That's the same word for meek. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Both Moses and Jesus, two of the strongest characters in the entire biblical narrative, they're described as meek. And then Paul the Apostle goes on to to talk about meekness more than any other biblical author throughout Scripture. Nine times he brings up this idea of the importance of meekness, whether he's describing himself and and trying to live out the spirit of meekness, or he's calling the church in some of his letters to, to be meek. So then what is it? What does it mean to be a person who is meek? Well, the original word that's used in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, is this Greek word, praos. And it's this really tough word to translate into English because no English word really encapsulates its depth and range of meaning. Aristotle, he taught that it was this line between anger and indifference. It it wasn't fiery rage and it wasn't passivity. It was kind of right in the center. And vamping off those words from Aristotle, William Barclay wrote this. He said, blessed is the one who's always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. I like that. The Greek word praos is this action word. And especially in the first few centuries, it was most often used to describe an animal who had been domesticated, kind of a meek animal, one who was really strong, had a lot of strength, but had learned to behave appropriately, especially towards its authority or its master. And so whether it was like a lion or a tiger who'd been domesticated and turned into a pet, or whether it was a horse that had learned to be rode on, Uh, This was a word that described an animal that had intense amounts of strength and power but had learned to be gentle, that that word praos. Uh, The other night, Kinsley, uh, before bed, I think she just wanted to stay up a little bit later, but she told me she wanted to watch some videos of horses. And so uh, I googled kids' video with horses, and uh, and this video popped up. It was uh, this video that a mom had made about her son, Carter. And Carter was this kid that was two or three years old, and he had this horse called Maple. And I guess very, very young, Maple and Carter built this relationship. And so he was two or three years old, and and, uh, he just shouted, May, May! And Maple from, I don't know, maybe a half a kilometer away, ran towards the fence. And I think the first time, the mom was a little bit nervous. You could hear her in the video as he was reaching out his hand to pet pet this horse, Maple. Uh, But she kind of came really gently towards him and and just allowed him to pet. And then the video goes on, and it it shows this little boy, Carter, growing up with with Maymay. And and this horse wouldn't listen to anyone else, but she would listen. Whenever he would call her, Maymay, she would run towards him, and he learned to pet her. 
And he learned to, to, to comb her, to brush her fur. And, and, and she followed him around. They, they showed at about three or four years old, him learning to walk her. This is a massive horse. She's probably 20 times his size and weight. And it's walking just so slowly behind this little boy, Carter, not crushing him. If he stumbled and fell, which he did in the video, it would just stop and wait. Maple would be described as, as preos. And Jesus is saying, blessed or in sync with the rule and reign of God are the meek. Preos. Something I learned in my study over this last week, and, and it was actually one of my mentors and teachers, Daryl Johnson, who helped me to see this, is that there's this deep connection between the third beatitude and this piece of Old Testament poetry in Psalm 37. Look specifically at Psalm 37, verse 11. It says this, but the humble, or you could say the meek, or the gentle, it's the same word, will inherit the land. Interesting. Sound familiar? It's the same, it's almost the exact same phrase that Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the, the, the whole psalm is linked together by this phrase, shall inherit the land or shall inherit the earth. It comes up five different times throughout that psalm, Psalm 37, in verse 9, and then verse 11, 22, 29, and 34. And it's kind of neat. A lot of biblical scholars point to the fact that this psalm, the whole psalm, is laying out this vision for what it looks like to be meek. And then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is echoing and pointing back to it, pulling that, all of that understanding from Psalm 37, pulling it into the Sermon on the Mount. And so I want to briefly look at Psalm 37 to to try to lay out a bit of a profile or a definition for what it means to be a meek person, a person who is meek. The first is this, and and this shows up in verse 3 and verse 5 of Psalm 37, that a meek person trusts in the Lord. The psalmist says that, that trust in God is the absolute starting place for the meek. That true meekness comes from knowing who God is, knowing, knowing that he's good and that he's in control of all things. Because when you trust in God, like when you know that he is ultimately the one who's in control, that he puts breath in our lungs, that he's the one who's just, that he's strong and powerful, the most powerful being in the entire universe, and that he loves us, that he's for us, it frees us up from the need to control to be in power. Trust in God empowers us to be meek. Verse five says it this way, that the meek commit their way to the Lord and trust also in him. That word commit, that's in the text, commit their way to the Lord. It's this active wordplay and it literally means to roll. The meek roll themselves onto the Lord. All of their problems, all their ambitions, all their dreams, even their reputation, all of it, they just roll it onto the Lord. It's this, this super active trust in the sovereignty of God, letting go of the things that are outside of our control and simply allowing God to be God, trusting that he's good, that he's in control. We also see in the psalm that a meek person doesn't fret in the face of evil. That shows up right in verse one. And this is so tied to trust, but those who are meek, they have this appropriate confidence in God that, that just calms all their fears. They start to become this non-anxious presence in the midst of adversity, And maybe it's important to say, it's not that they're oblivious to everything that's going on around them. They're not numb to all the bad and the evil and that's going on in the world. But all of those things that surround them, they don't compare to God who's in control of the entire universe and who knows the end from the beginning. Once you have an appropriate vision of of God and who he is, being scared, fretting, fearful, 
It's like worrying about a, a tiny little man who's at your door and threatening you, and maybe 75 pounds, and he's like, I'm gonna do this to you, but behind you, you have like the biggest bodybuilder. You have like a Terry Crews, or name your favorite WWE wrestler or, or MMA fighter, is standing behind you. It's like, why would you be afraid? When anything comes against you, the meek have this confidence in God as their protector. And because of that, their fears, their worries, their anxieties, all of it begin to slowly fade away. I think Hudson Taylor is a, is a really great example of this, of trust in the face of evil. If you don't know who that is, Hudson Taylor was this uh, missionary to China in the late 1800s. He made this huge impact on the nation of China. Many, many people came to faith in Jesus through his ministry and through his life. But I heard a story um, about one day where there was this civil war going on, and in the compound where, where, where Hudson Taylor and the other missionaries were staying, it got completely surrounded by the enemy soldiers. All around them, there was no way out. There was nothing that they could do. And so one of the other missionaries ran into to Hudson Taylor's office and said, Hudson, they're gonna come in. They're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna kill us. They're gonna take us. We have to do something. And, and what that missionary found was Hudson Taylor just sitting at his desk, hands open to the Lord, singing hymns. Just in a quiet moment, fully surrounded by the enemy. And so even louder, that missionary said, Hudson, we gotta do something. What are you doing? Get up. We only have a few moments. They're, they're closing in around us. And, and allegedly, Hudson Taylor said, what else do you want me to do? There's nothing we can do. We're surrounded. There's nothing we can do in this moment. And if we are gonna die right now, there's nothing I would rather do than die singing hymns of praise and worship to God. And if anyone's gonna save me, the only one who can save me is Jesus. And so I'll sit here I'll pray, I'll worship, and I'll cry out to him. I think that's such a beautiful picture. It makes me think of this, uh, this beautiful worship song by a band called Upper Room. And there's this line in the bridge. Why is the bridge always the best part of the song, hey? But it says, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. And they just sing that over and over again. It might look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. In other words, in the natural sense, with my human eyes, I'm surrounded there's no way out. My situation looks bleak. It looks hopeless. But what's even truer than what I can see with my eyes, that my current situation is that I am surrounded by you, God, that you are my protector. And that situation with Hudson Taylor, God did provide. He did provide a way out for them, and they were able to escape. But the meek person doesn't fret in the face of evil because their confidence is in the Lord. The meek also, they do good in the face of evil. They don't respond to evil in the world by inflicting more evil. They don't respond to injustice by just practicing other forms of injustice. This is an aspect of meekness that keeps surfacing over and over again through the Sermon on the Mount. Like Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, Jesus says it like this. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you or take you to court, hand over your coat to them as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go, the, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks of you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Not too long after that verse, he goes on to say that we should love our enemies and that we should pray for those who persecute us, who curse us. Again, it's this upside down kingdom that Jesus is setting in motion. And the meek can do good in the face of evil, not because they're okay with injustice, not at all because they're okay with evil winning, not because they don't want to stand up to a bully, but because their trust in God is a trust that he is a good and righteous judge because he does promise ultimate justice for those who are oppressed. 
The meek person's free to do good in the face of justice because they trust in God. Stuart Briscoe, who's a British theologian, he said it like this. The meek roll their lives, their careers, their reputations on the Lord and let the Lord worry about it all. The meek are those who, when offended, commit their wounded egos and the one offending their egos to the perfect judge. The meek can say to themselves, what they did to me is wrong, but they are answerable to God, so I'll let God deal with them. But I'm answerable to God too, so I'm gonna concentrate on doing right by them. And the right thing to do might be to forgive, it might be to confront the situation, it might be both. But either way, they roll it all onto the Father. We just acknowledge it takes so much strength to be meek, to be gentle when everything inside of you wants to react, everything inside of you wants to lash out. Like when you're treated unjustly at work or when a friend betrays you or when someone gossips about you or they speak poorly about you behind your back or when someone cheats you out of a business deal or when a family member writes you out of the family will or whatever it might be, all these painful things. It takes so much courage to be meek to be gentle, to roll those things onto God, to trust him in the midst of those difficult circumstances. It takes so much strength in the midst of those big, crazy situations. I find it also takes, takes a lot of courage in, in just the everyday, ordinary moments of life. Like when I'm just trying to get my kids ready and out the door to go to daycare, to go to work, and Harper's taken her shoes off three times since breakfast. <laughs> And Kinsley's throwing a temper tantrum because uh, she wanted sunny-side-up sunny eggs and I overcooked them again. And it seems like Jorley is like just taking forever to finish getting ready and I'm just waiting by the door. It's so easy in those moments to react harshly or to use tones that are condescending or harsh. It takes so much courage in those moments. Meekness is a posture of gentleness in the everyday, ordinary stuff of life. Rather than being angry or lashing out in a stressful or an irritating situation, showing love, showing kindness, long-suffering. James stresses this point, one of the biblical authors. He says this, let, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and overflowing wickedness. Receive with humility, again, that's meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. See, to be meek is to show mercy, to practice humility when you have every right to be angry. You have every right to say the last word, to speak, to be, to be mad. Okay, so with all of that in mind from Psalm 37, I wanna go back to those two figures that I talked about who were spoken of in scripture as a meek. I mentioned them earlier, Moses and Jesus. Moses was called, again in Numbers 12, very meek, more than any man who was ever on the face of the earth. But I wanna look at what was the specific context that was happening in around Moses being called meek. Here's what was happening. Miriam and Aaron, Moses' two siblings, they were challenging his position of authority within the community. They were doing it publicly. They were talking poorly about him to the people he was trying to lead. They also didn't like, they didn't like Moses' wife, and so they started to speak poorly about her. They were criticizing her. They were gossiping about her. They were jealous that Moses was God's mouthpiece, and, and, and he was the one that was chosen to speak to God's people on behalf of him. And so again, they started to publicly say, rally support for their perspective among the people of Israel, bringing division and, and insult after insult into the public square. They were dragging his name through the mud. I don't know if you've ever been there before. I have. And it is an incredibly painful place to be. But what did Moses do when he was caught in the midst of this, when he was being publicly insulted 
probably felt so betrayed by his brother and his sister. He refused to lash out at Miriam and Aaron. He refused to get worked up about it. He didn't demand an apology from them. He rolled it all on God. He knew that God had called him to this place of leadership. God had called him to this post. He knew that God was just and would vindicate the truth. At some point, what was true would come out. And so rather than defending himself, he trusted God with his reputation. He trusted God that God would protect him, even, in the words of, 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 even from the words of people he loved. He didn't lash out. He didn't get worked up about it. He didn't repay evil with evil or start spreading all sorts of rumors about his siblings just to get even. He rolled it all on God. He did good in the face of evil. Is that spineless? I think that takes strength and courage to be meek. And I think it seems that, that, that meekness is most visible in the face of pain and hurt. Like when you're treated unjustly, when you're betrayed, when, you're wor- when words are being said about you and, and motives that you have are twisted and things are assumed about you that are so far from the truth that, and you don't retaliate, that's meekness. Rather than repaying evil with evil, you're quiet. You trust in God. You don't tear down the people that hurt you. But wherever possible, you speak well of them. That's meekness. We also see all these characteristics from, uh, from Psalm 37 come out in the life of Jesus, especially in those days that led up to his death. We walked through this whole thing just a few weeks ago through our Lent series. But I want to remember for a moment all that Jesus went through. Remember, the, the, the police, they spat on him. They blindfolded him and they beat him. This intense violence towards Jesus. The foreign military personnel, they shouted insults at him. They crowned him with a a crown of thorns on his head. They put this royal purple robe on him. They mocked him and they shouted at him, but he refused to respond and retaliate. Like in a single moment, he could have called down fire from heaven and just smoked those guys, but he didn't. He didn't echo their actions or their spirit. As Peter, one of Jesus' disciples who was there, who actually witnessed the whole thing, he said this about Jesus. While he was being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Instead, he kept entrusting himself to the one who is a righteous judge. You know, there's only one place in scripture that Jesus shares his heart, the depths of his heart. There's an author and pastor um, named Dane Ortland who's written extensively on this topic. There's only one place in the Bible where Jesus pulls back the veil and describes the characteristics of his own heart. And here's what he says. It's in Matthew chapter 11. He says that he's gentle and lowly, or you could say meek and lowly. Ortland writes this in his book. He says, meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. The point is in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible For all his glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has been more approachable than Jesus Christ. Isn't that good? So then when we're meek, we look like Jesus. In Philippians chapter two, Paul the apostle, he he calls followers of Jesus to, to follow the example of Jesus in meekness. He says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. That's the word praos again. 
He humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, while Jesus had all the power and authority, he was fully God, he humbled himself. He showed meekness. He took the place of his servant. He didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He, he harnessed his power and he used it for good. He used it to save, to save us. In our day and age, I don't think there is a more countercultural Christian practice than meekness. It's so rare to find a meekness nowadays, even among professing Christians. But a person who is meek stands out so much in a culture like ours because everyone is shouting at each other. Everyone's shouting over each other, even especially online, quick to make judgment calls about each other and motives and canceling each other really quickly. But when someone doesn't retaliate, or doesn't insist on making all, all their thoughts and opinions on every single topic known to everyone, doesn't feel the need to tear down people who have a different worldview than them when they're kind to the world around. That stands out. That's attractive. Someone who's known for, for what they're for rather than doubling down on all the things that they're against and who they're against. That kind of person makes people ask questions. Let me say it again. When we are meek, we look like Jesus. Maybe at this, at this point in the message, it's important to say that just like the other Beatitudes, these are not a list of qualities that we should just try really hard to embody. What I don't want you to hear today, what I don't want you to walk away from this talk thinking is I have to try really hard this week to be meek. You can't will yourself to meekness. It's not a natural human quality. Meekness is a work of the spirit in our lives. It's actually a fruit of the spirit. You know, listen, following Jesus is not opposed to effort. It takes a lot of effort to follow Jesus. But the ratio is like 95-5. He does 95% of the work. And our job is simply to keep our hearts soft before him, to allow him to convict us, to refine us, to take control. As the kingdom of God gets a hold of us and captures our imagination, as we learn to trust him fully with our lives and surrender it all to him, as we spend time with Jesus, we begin to, over time, start to look like him, start to look like Jesus. We become meek. We become people who don't have to have the final word, people who don't retaliate, who have this unwavering trust in God, who do good in the face of evil. In this beatitude, Jesus is saying, when my gospel gets a hold, when the rule and reign of God gets a hold of you, something happens. You begin to become meek, become gentle, Okay, as we close, I want to look at um, the promise for this beatitude. Matthew 5, 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The promise for, for those who are meek is that they'll inherit the earth, but my question is when? Like, it doesn't feel to me like the meek are inheriting the earth. It feels like the greedy are inheriting the earth. Like those who claw their way to the top, they seem like the ones who are inheriting. When will this promise be fulfilled? When, when will the meek inherit the earth? I think the answer is most prominently in the age to come. When, when the earth is fully restored and renewed, when Jesus comes again for us. It's in the age to come, but also, it's long before that. The meek will inherit the earth in the here and now. Because who are the people that really enjoy the earth? Is it the people who, who, who stomp on others and claw their way to the top? The ones who are always seeking more and more power and stuff and are always competing with the people around them? No, they're way too busy pushing their way and grabbing and preserving their little kingdom to enjoy life. The playing king of the hill is an exhausting way to live. 
Those who delight in the Lord, those who trust in him fully, in his plans, they're free to enjoy life. They're free to like smell the roses, so to speak. To actually appreciate a sunset or a cup of coffee with a friend. To have deeply formed friendships. The meek will inherit the earth. Right now in part and later in full. Okay, we're gonna move into a time of response and singing, a time of worship. And as we do, I wanna ask that if you're, if you're willing and able, would you stand with me across this whole room? I don't know about you, but I long to be the kind of person that Jesus describes in this third beatitude. I want that to be true of me. I long to be meek, to embody the kind of gentleness and selflessness that we've been talking about over this last 30 minutes or so that, that we see in the life of Jesus. And if you're here today and you say, you know, that's true of me too, I, I do want to be meek. I do want to embody this fruit of the Spirit. Then uh, I just want to encourage you in this moment to, to just kind of posture your hands like this in a posture to receive from the Holy Spirit. Just open up your hands. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for us. The Spirit of the living God. We want to follow you fully. We want to submit our hearts, our will, our situations, our hurts, our pain to you. We want to be people who are marked by meekness people who don't repay evil for evil, people who don't have to have the final word. We want to be people who are after your heart, who look like you, Jesus, who do good in the midst of brokenness. So I just pray for each person who's in this room this morning, Jesus, that by your spirit, you would empower us to be the meek. That in a moment where we have a choice to make of how we're gonna respond in a given situation, God, I just pray that you would give us the courage and strength we need to live out this attitude of meekness. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.